Welcome to Talk About. On Talk About, our goal is to sit down with open-minded people for open and honest discussion. No judgment, no hidden agenda, just getting the conversation started. This week, we're joined by COO of Xylorian, Scott Phillips. In a time where mental health is at the forefront of conversation, we continue to explore the steps, procedures, and purpose of legalizing psilocybin in Canada. Sit back and enjoy the show. And I did see that you have your drink there. You have my drink. Awesome. So coffee. then we will pick those those cups up and we'll do a virtual cheers. All right. Cheers. Cheers, Scott. Well, thank you very much for uh, sitting down with me today. Uh, my pleasure. We, we had a chance to, to do the intro chat a couple of weeks ago and I get to know you a little bit. You came highly recommended. I had looked into you uh, as well. And to be honest with you, I started to look through all your credentials and I didn't even know where I wanted to focus for the most part because you do have your hands in so many different things. Um, but the company that you are currently COO for, Xylorian, is the main topic of conversation. Um, you guys are focusing on, you're part of that process right now of focusing on getting mushrooms approved in Canada for the use in treat of mental, mental, mental health issues. Uh, I know that there's more to that and I want you to be able to describe it a little bit more for me. So could you, could you tell me a little bit before we go back to see how we got to this point, what Xylorian and you are doing right now? Yeah, so Xylorian is a younger company. We're within a year of age that was created by Dr. Peter Silverstone, who is a psychiatrist and researcher out of the University of Alberta and currently the interim chair of the Department of Psychiatry. And the goal is to start looking at psilocybin, which is the active agent within the magic mushroom, uh, as people predominantly know it, as a way to treat mental health. Now, psychedelics in and of itself have become a part of a renaissance right now in mental health, whether we're talking of psilocybin, LSD, MDMA, uh, DMT, and others. Um, we focused on psilocybin because we did feel, and Peter being the researcher much more brilliant than I am, that psilocybin as a compound would be the most helpful with the greatest uh, response that in certain areas, whether it's treatment resistant depression, addiction issues, eating disorders, there's a few companies out there that are focusing on eating disorders as well. Uh, we are looking at the natural product right now. Uh, there's nothing saying that there isn't going to be a review at some point or another in synthetic, because that's what a lot of competitors are doing, specifically Compass Pathways and such. Um, and we're also a fan of the idea of the entourage effect. So for a millennia and millennia, individuals have been taking these mushrooms as a whole, and there's multiple uh, compounds within there, whether it's psilocybin, psilocin, neobiocystin, or many others. And there could be grouped to what is called the entourage effect. Now, while the active ingredient may be psilocybin, you need all those compounds to actually be able to create the same enhanced benefit that people used to get a thousand years ago. So this is where our research is kind of focusing right now. So where where did the interest of, of Xylorian come from in terms of looking to, to garner this response in Canada? I mean, when we spoke before, you were saying that there are other countries that have been doing this already. There is a, a level of legalization, I know, down in the States. Um, but you were actually telling me that there's a lot of other countries right now that it is legal. So what made you think that now is the time to do this? We, we've hit a point where Health Canada has become more and more open to the idea of it, much like cannabis before us, and there are quite stark differences between these industries, but like cannabis before us, Health Canada slowly started to open the door for the ability to do that, as is the FDA. A lot of this has to do with MAPS and other groups down in the US pushing for it. Uh, Com Compass has a synthetic molecule called Comp360, where it's a psilocybin-based molecule that got breakthrough status with the FDA. So it's part of uh, uh, this process going to it. And I think with COVID as well, being brought into play in the last two years almost now, that we know there's going to be a lot of mental health issues because of the isolation people have felt, the careers that have ended, the uh, trauma of deaths and all these other things that occur to individuals over the last 18 months right now, that 
while we faced a mental health crisis prior to COVID, it's starkly going to be worse. Most people are guessing. So how are we going to manage it? And right now, there isn't a lot of good pharmaceuticals that manage it well. Uh, and you know, for us, to be clear, it's not just the idea of the compound of psilocybin. It's psilocybin plus the therapy. You need to have that therapy as well. I, I love the fact that you said that. We talked about this before uh, as well. If you're just doing one component of this, it doesn't work. I mean, mm -hmm. I've gone through therapy. I, I believe in therapy as, as definitely a mode, but even therapy alone, I don't think is enough. I, I really believe that you have to be doing multi-pronged approaches to these different aspects in order to see some, some true growth. I agree. I mean, if you are overweight and you want to lose weight and you focus on just exercising, but you still eat everything you want to eat, you're not going to likely have much success. That's right. You, you need a, a diet of things. It's, it's a great way of putting it. And, and that being said, you guys are actually working with psychiatrists. Is that yes. correct? So yeah. when I was speaking with, um, with a call or with a, uh, a person that we're both familiar with, Mike, he was on the show before and he had opened the door for us to have this conversation, which was fantastic. He actually made an amazing point. And I've been actually saying it to everybody that it seems as though psychiatrists are the new shamans. Would you agree with something like that? That's, that's an interesting viewpoint. I mean, I, in some ways, I guess uh, anybody who prescribes any form of medication, well, I guess one could argue with it, but uh, it is good that there's going to be gatekeepers for this, whether they be psychiatrists or GPs. I'm not quite sure what every province will likely be uh, dictating what they, each one does if it gets covered, but uh, it is good to have somebody to help you along that journey, and it's not just self-medication. A hundred percent. I mean, even when I talk to people on a recreational level uh, and they ask me about, you know, conversations I've had with people and the experiences people have, and then they say, hey, can you do me a favor and hook me up with this type of person? And it's like, listen, I'm not qualified to make that type of recommendation because it sounds to me uh, being a very amateur psychologist person who just basically judges that's all. That's all I. That's all I have. There's no credentials behind my name, um, but you can see people enough to know that just a little bit of an eye-open experience isn't going to be enough for the issues that they're dealing with. You have to be talking to professionals that that can guide you along. You do, and you know, if you're doing a microdose, for example, it would be very different than if you're going on a quote-unquote full trip. If you're doing that, you're going to need to have the professionals who've been trained to do it as well. A lot of them have never been a part of this before. So there's got to be uh, different therapeutic modalities offered. And right now there's an overarching one uh, that MAPS created that's very good, um, but it's a generalistic one. You know, over periods of time, I think many groups are going to try to focus more and more that if it's a psilocybin trip or an LSD trip or an MDMA trip, there'll be specific things to watch for. There'll be specific requirements on how to manage it appropriately. Uh, and I think that is also part of what the next few years are gonna hold for this industry. Not just let's focus on the novel molecule or how to extract the psilocybin from the mushrooms in the best way, but also how do we have the most effective and efficient therapy and therapeutic modality really for what you're going through. Fair enough. And I, I wanna pick your brain a little bit on what the future is looking like and what you're hoping the future looks like. But I do want to take a step back and I want to talk about you for a minute because you're, I find you're a very fascinating person. When we started talking, you were a businessman, uh, COO of Zylorian. And then as we started talking, I found out that you were uh, the assistant chair uh, for psychiatry at the University of, of uh, Alberta. Um, you had, you've worked with the, in the transgender community to establish different things. So I want you to take me on a journey. Like, let's go back. How do you end up here? Where did you start? And how did you end up here? Oh, I feel that we're now going to get to the, the dollar part of the conversation. <laughs> I will do my best to make it entertaining. So um, yeah, to get to where I am right now with Zylorian. Uh, so when I started my career, I was in the energy sector. And I started my career in the energy sector simply because I moved to Calgary when I was 14 and spent many, many years in Calgary. And let's be frank, that was during a boom period. So anyhow, I started with that. And over a period of time, I 
didn't want to continue a career in the energy sector. I didn't know what I really wanted to do. It's, I had my undergraduate degree. I then did my master's degree at Cornell uh, in business administration. I uh, had many clients. I was doing a lot of consulting after that. One of my clients was a lab diagnostic company, a very large one, and had virtually the contract for all laboratory diagnostics uh, from Red Deer, if you know Alberta, at all through the north. And so they asked me at one point to come to Edmonton and be part of the team. And I worked on logistics and all these things. And that was my first exposure to healthcare. Uh, and during that period, I happened to meet a few people in the Department of Psychiatry and the assistant chair job came up and they were looking for somebody that wasn't a traditional academic focused person. They wanted somebody that had a little bit of a business background because they were going through a change management period and wanted to also figure out how can we bring better, whether it be better clinics, whether it be better trained psychiatrists to Albertans, as well as how can we help our students achieve what they want to achieve in their career as physicians. So that's when I began my career at the University of Alberta. And I was probably a very odd duck for them at first, as the old expression goes, because I was the guy that came in and didn't mind the fact that we had done things for 20 years that way. That's a horrible excuse. There is, if you don't mind me going on a very quick little anecdote that I've always, I always use, and this is what I do with, my, I tell my employees this, there's nothing I hate more than when somebody comes to me and I ask, well, why do we do it this way? And they say, because we've always done it this way. It, it drives me up the wall. And there was an old Broadway actress named Ethel Merman. She was the queen of Broadway. And in the 50s or 60s, uh, she was doing a show called Happy Hunting with an actor named Fernando Lamas. She, you know, started out in the 30s. There were no mics. You projected to the back of the audience. Fernando Lamas came from the actor's studio with Brando. So that's when people tried to actually act. At one point during this process of um, rehearsals, he put up his hand and said, excuse me, I got to stop. I have a question. And the director says, what's the problem? And Lama said, is this how it's always going to be? And the director said, what do you mean? And he said that I speak to Miss Merman and she speaks out to the audience. She grit her teeth and said, I've been doing it this way for over 30 years. And he looked at her and said, it doesn't mean you're right. It means you're old. <laughs> <laughs> and my takeaway is that either people will understand this and come up with a better reason, or they'll go so sick of hearing that story from me every single time that they'll come up with a better reason. But either way, that's my motivational story on that. Uh, I, I agree with you a thousand percent. I have this conversation all the time. I'm, I'm a person who doesn't have a formal education. I, I, I like to say that experience has been my education. Um, you know, I'm, I'm by no means a, a stupid person, but like I said, I'm not formally educated. However, yeah. one of the things that I love is talking to people who are educated, people who are professionals and, and asking them why it is they do do the things yeah. that they do. I, I love the outsider approach. I think that there's such, there's such value to be gained by somebody who looks at things just a little bit different. So it's really cool that they, they kind of viewed you as that person. Yeah, if you write something, very often you'll ask somebody to proofread it for an outside set of eyes. Why we don't do this in our institutions and general businesses is beyond me. But so uh, that that's why I went into it. Now, of course, in my family and amongst friends, mental health issues were done uh, that, you know, I became uh, more knowledgeable about, as we all have. I mean, who hasn't has been touched in some way, shape or form by mental health? Uh, at one point in Calgary, I sat on the board of a group called the Calgary Association of Self-Help, which helped individuals who couldn't afford appropriate wraparound healthcare services for mental health, uh, the opportunity to have both therapeutic counseling as well as uh, work-based and craft-based counseling as well. So, uh, you know, I did get to touch on a few different things before I did start at the University of Alberta, but then, of course, my eyes opened like a deer caught in the headlights and uh, looked at all the gaps that exist, but also all the possibilities. So what were some of the initial gaps that, that you spotted that really you felt needed to be addressed? You know, there were a few, uh, you know, as things were progressing within psychiatry, there were a lot of subspecialties, whether it's child and adolescent or geriatric or addictions, that we didn't have a lot of people specifically trained 
in it. And we frankly weren't doing the best job in our department training individuals for it. We didn't offer a lot of unique systems. When I started, we had just finally started to have subspecialties, which is a continuance of learning past your residency in some of these areas that are, and the subspecialty means the Royal College assents them and says, this is something that you should do and you'll get extra credit for. And we have that now in child and adolescent, in geriatric and in forensics. But some of these other things like sleep disorders and mood disorder and eating disorders, none of that exists. There's no Royal College program. So is there a way for us to engage our students more, our residents more, to maybe have an interest because the population that needs this is much larger than what can be managed based on the number of practitioners currently focusing on it. So that was a big one. The sleep one was something that caught my attention when we were talking last time. You had said that you were very interested in sleep disorders and there was uh, you wanted to do some work in on that. Uh, I find that really fascinating because the impact on your sleep patterns and how sleep affects your entire life, whatever age you're at, is yeah. so drastic. And it's being talked about more and more now because of mental health being at the forefront and it seems like such a simplistic thing that I think people really miss it. They, they, they just miss the boat on poor sleep habits. Yeah. What do you think would be a great, like, what do you think would be an approach for that? So within the realm of psychiatry, a lot of this has to do with being a comorbidity, whether it be a pulmonary disorder or treatment resistant depression or uh, something else. Uh, but of course, there are many sleep disorders that are the DSM five currently looks at and uh, you know it, it's a matter of the therapeutic component of it because you're going to again you're going to need counseling and they do work in the, whether it's a psychiatrist doing it or a sleep nurse or a sleep counselor that is part of it uh possibly some forms of gen 2 medications uh what likely happens a lot though is if you have trouble sleeping you go and get a CPAP machine and that's considered just the solving thing. And if you have sleep apnea, yes, makes perfect sense. But in a lot of these other things, it's a little bit deeper than that physical issue. Yeah, that that's, uh, it's really interesting. My own personal experience with uh, sleep and sleep apnea was going through a time where I was snoring every night, not sleeping through the night, went to the sleep clinic, went through all of that. First of all, when I was there, I felt it was quite awkward because, you know, you're strapped up to 70 wires and you're told to sleep a certain way and someone's going to come in every couple of hours and wake you up. And I thought to myself, well, that's not the way I would normally sleep at home, but you guys are the professionals. Let's go with it. I was yeah. diagnosed with extreme sleep apnea and all that type oh, wow. of stuff. I don't doubt that there's some sleep apnea there, but when looking back on fresh eyes, it was also the most stressful time of my life. Um, my, my stress was off the charts. Now there's some times now where I'll still get that, you know, snoring in the middle of the night or that little bit of a hiccup while I'm sleeping and stuff. It's nowhere near what it was back then, but the only solution was here's a CPAP machine, which oddly enough, didn't work for me. Cause I have a D I had a deviated septum. I couldn't oh, breathe yeah. with the masks on and stuff. So <laughs> that's fair yeah that you, you feel that that would have been looked at actually well this, um, yeah and this is but this is the whole all-encompassing in the wraparound that you're talking about right yeah. like nobody's like nobody's talking to anybody so how are you supposed to get a full diagnosis right and within you know psychiatry and mental health specific using the more general mental health you know you have insomnia sleep paralysis uh circadian disorders even narcolepsy uh, which is kind of a version of sleep disorders, but it's the exact opposite of its insomnia, which is quite dangerous. I mean, uh, people falling asleep at any given time is not a good situation either. No different than being awake for three days straight. Uh, this is true. This is true. So how close do you think we are at getting sleep disorders encompassed in that area where mental health is actually being talked about and psychiatry can treat it? I think it's there. Um, what we our issue we had in northern Alberta, in the area of, that I'm 
in was that there just wasn't a critical mass of psychiatrists to help with that. And you don't always need a psychiatrist for this, don't get me wrong. Uh, but when it was a severe case where a psychiatrist was required as part of the intervention, there was only one specialist, really two specialists at the most that can see individuals. And then it, it, that would create a two to three year wait list and not at the fault of these physicians, they're getting burnt out trying to manage that wait list. It's just, unfortunately, there isn't uh, enough of them. So you're talking about psychiatry, and and I'm assuming that the component of this focus is because it is a medical based. Like with psychiatry, you can you can write prescriptions, whereas Correct. with psychology, you can't. Correct. So that's interesting. So it would it would need to be linked in that way in order for it to be that that sub curriculum. Is that what you're is that what you're saying? Yeah. So if you had a, a, a full clinic model, you'd have the psychiatrist, but you'd also have the psychologist or the sleep nurse using sleep disorders, for example, or somebody else that will help manage the patient most of the time. And then the psychiatrist will only be a part of the conversations as required, because whether in Ontario or Alberta, the medical professional is also the most expensive and the one that we have the fewest of. So it makes sense from a health service standpoint to have these other wraparound services. You said that you wanted to focus in on, on sleep disorders at some point in time, but you didn't really know exactly what that, that looked like. Have you been able yeah. to kind of uh, draw a picture? So what the goal would have been is to create a training program, whether it's fellowships or something else along those lines. Uh, first, for medical students, specifically residents of psych uh, psychiatry, to allow them to be more engaged in that area, to create an interest. So living in Edmonton, uh, I'm sure you'd be shocked to find that it's not the easiest to recruit uh, skilled professionals who have the ability to work anywhere they want. So uh, the idea of being able to go out and getting a sleep psychiatrist or a eating disorder psychiatrist isn't necessarily easy. But traditionally speaking, 70 some percent of residents, and this is a metric that exists throughout any post-secondary education will stay where they graduate. So you probably won't be able to create a critical mass right now. But what you can do is build a generational change and have individuals over the next seven to 10 years become interested in this and build a critical mass as this you know, a population ages. And we recognize more and more um, of these mental health uh, disorders. And that isn't just pertaining to sleep, that would pertain to any of these very focused, specialized areas. How does technology aid that at all, Scott, being able to bring in people from other provinces and other countries and create a network of psychiatry and, and, and uh, psychologists and all sorts of professionals that can offer that wraparound approach? It is changing it. Now, this has been pushed much quicker than anybody would have anticipated thanks to COVID. If we were having this conversation two years ago, I would have said like, it exists, but it's not really being used. Now it's becoming more and more prominent. However, there are a few caveats that, you know, if you were a physician trained in Canada, that is fine and you can practice across. If you're a physician though trained in other areas of the globe, you might not actually meet the standards the Royal College uh, creates for the uh, Canadian medical profession. So that is a, a wall that we'd have to face as well as in Canada, of course, a psychiatrist's time is covered by the healthcare system, uh, regardless of the province. As soon as you start stepping outside of your province of practice, unless you have an agreement, you don't necessarily get your fee for service remuneration. And so there are, these are a few other areas that will have to be figured out over the course of the next five years or so to decide how we can actually leverage opportunities such as that. So it's interesting because you come in as, as a business professional and yeah. with somebody who had an, an eye to, opened up towards mental health. And so you're seeing both sides of it. And you had referred to yourself last time we spoke as a lay person. Listen, there's nobody that has that many credentials that, that's a lay person. But I understand what you're saying. You're not the, you know, the, the psychologist or the psychiatrist. But in seeing the business side of things too, how... 
I don't want to put words into your mouth, but it has to be frustrating to look at things from a business perspective and say, listen, guys, we're all trained professionals here. Why don't we just come together for the thing that we said we were going to do, which is help people? Yeah. Well, like, I mean, yeah. I know. No, I, 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 I agree. And uh, however, it's never as simple as it seems. So, um, you know, if we look at, you know, in Alberta right now, we're facing many crises in the addiction sphere. One, of course, um, is having a very uh, serious uh, issue with opioids. One area that um, would seem fairly simple is let's figure out how to just bring together an addiction psychiatrist, a counselor, and a residential house of some sort or another that can take this individual, poof, it's done. But then you have, of course, the legal requirements. If somebody doesn't want to go into counseling, for example, then what do you do? Uh, you know, a good story when I started is trying to offer more of our psychiatrists and our other mental health services to the indigenous population in Alberta, specifically those that don't live in the city, in the, in the rural areas. And I will be the first to admit, I walked in in my businessman attitude of, you know, why don't we get a psychiatrist, a nurse, a GP, and I don't know, maybe a, a pharmacist, put them in a van and they can go for it. Like, this is the simplest thing. Why has nobody thought of this? Because, you know, we all have our egos and we all think we're brilliant with these ideas. Not taking into account, first and foremost, the cultural barrier that is created and having to actually meld East and West medicine to actually make it work culturally there. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of things that do frustrate me without a doubt, but some of the things that then uh, frustrate me become my frustrations with me being ignorant to the other ways to have managed this beforehand uh, that I will openly talk to. But yeah, uh, you know, uh, growing up in this business world and finding efficiencies and finding effectiveness and you know, Lean Six Sigma and how do we try to make things the most uh, specific and appropriate possible. As soon as you bring people into it, it's never that simple. And even from a management standpoint, it's kind of, you know, what's that old expression in retail that 10% of your customers will take up 90% of your time. It's kind of, as soon as you start to even add employees into the equation, that ends up taking a lot of your time too. So um there's no one size fits all, but yeah, I will say that there are still some frustrations I have within the health service delivery on how to do it, but they're facing their own politics. They're facing their own budget constraints. So it's much easier for me to stand outside and point and throw stones than it is if I was actually a part of it, I'm sure. That's fair, but it also now sounds like with all these experiences that you've had thus far, that your perspective is at least opening up to the fact that there's a lot of things that are outside of our control and it's, it's people are as simple as we can be, we're unbelievably complex in our own desires and needs, aren't we? Wow, I thought you were actually going to say it sounds like you're going to be a politician one day, but <laughs> my answer. <laughs> hey, listen, uh, political answers are fine. I, and to be honest with you, the more that I learn, the more that I grow, I understand that the political answer is actually sometimes, not always, but sometimes an admittance of, listen, there's no possible way to know all the facts before you yeah. can give 100%, you know, uh, facts on the matter at hand. But one of the areas that you did work on before you got to the point where you are now is you were working within the transgender community. So can you tell me a little bit about that work that you were doing? Yes. So um, at the University of Alberta Hospital, where the Department of Psychiatry academically was located, uh, we created a transgender program. And this was just great because, again, it, we didn't have the critical mass to assist individuals that were requiring uh, help on their journey. And part of their journey was in Alberta to go towards surgery, you needed two psychiatrists to sign off on this. And at that point, we only had one practicing psychiatrist that focused on the disorder. So uh, it was not the disorder, it focused on transgender requirements. So we found Dr. Michael Marshall, who had been working in this area in Red Deer, actually, which is around an hour and a half south of Edmonton, and we coerced him to come up and help us with this. And we were able to, out of that department, build a program that allowed for 
nursing, to allow for counseling, and to allow for the psychiatric review that was required by the province, uh, simply because these individuals were individuals who were on wait lists for three to five years mm. to try to have even a first assessment that was required. And I, it's kind of odd to sit back and say, you are required to go through these steps, but by the way, we're not really going to prepare the system to allow for these steps to happen in a timely fashion. Mm -hmm. And, you know, many of these are individuals who are have an incongruency of self because they are not in the body that they identify in. So, which, you know, then leads to, in some cases, you know, depression or other things that, you know, why would we not want to do what we can to help with this? And I mean, if you look at some of the stats, you know, a lot of the stats, the susceptibility of suicidal tendencies for male adolescents, transgender is a very big reason for it because they're not getting the support and the help to even know that somebody is out there. Even if you don't want, you and the program wasn't set up so that it's just for individuals whose journey is going to end in surgery. It was there to have a wraparound service so people also got whatever level of help they required. And to know more importantly, they're not alone. I mean, it's a very strong community, but even then you still have to have supports in many different facets to allow for it. Yeah. And we were able to do, uh, you know, small research programs and researching things like what about digital therapy and units to help. So we were able to get some funding for that as well, because being an academic institution, we also have to anchor what we're doing in teaching and in research. That's, it's a fascinating approach. And so what would you say out of that program that you had learned in, with your your side of it, your involvement in it, that uh, that you thought was exactly where it was going to go, or something that might have actually surprised you that that you started this this up and you were like, oh, I didn't even consider the the consequences that were being addressed in this this angle over here. I think actually what I found was that there was a lot more openness to working with these individuals. What would end up happening with a lot of healthcare practitioners. Um, they generally didn't have much practice in the area, just out of fear of the unknown, because they they don't understand they didn't understand the journey. So then it was working with groups like WPATH and CPATH on how to offer training to other healthcare professionals to be able to assist these individuals on their journey. That's fascinating. I mean, th that would have to be vital to it, because then all you're doing is coming with your own ideas as to what that person may be going through, which there's no possible way that you could understand it if you're not going through no, that journey yourself. Exactly. And, uh, you know, fortunately, with groups like WPATH, they have already built a lot of these training modules. So it's just a matter of integrating it into the Alberta system to assist. And right now, um, it is a nonprofit called the Wellness Center off of White Ave, which is kind of our young street over in uh, just south of the river from downtown. And just because we wanted to decant it out of the hospital because part of the feeling was that in the hospital makes it feel like it's some kind of disorder or some kind of issue that something is wrong with you versus just being a community center where one can go to receive those services. So that was successfully launched around a year and a half ago. Wow. A year and a half ago, and it's it's amazing. Like you, you touched upon it with COVID. There, there is this acceleration of things, um, and there's maybe it's an opportunity to be able to address things that we couldn't have addressed because we're buried under the way that we used to do life and kind of move through life before COVID hit. Uh, but but kind of hitting the pause button on that has brought to light some of the things I think that are a little bit more important than just going working a job, paying your bills, and and kind of, you know, moving on with your life. It's interesting because I find with COVID and because we got so constricted for a period of time, I mean, societally, you know, good fences make good neighbors kind of thing. Though Frost was being ironic, but that's neither here nor there. Yeah. Um, you know, because we then were forced to be constricted, it's interesting now watching people that are, it's like coming out of the cave into the light. And now everybody wants to have more human engagement than we did prior to this. I mean, uh, two years ago, if you sat back and said, oh, this is great. I don't have to fly to Toronto to talk to you. I'm going to be able to see this, uh, you know, face to face over Zoom. 
uh, I would have thought that was the greatest deal in the world. And now, now I want to have meetings with people again. I want human interaction again. Yeah, that that physical presence is so invaluable. And I don't know, this is such a short uh, history in, in, you know, COVID right now to be able to really test it out to see how far we can go without having that physical interaction. But I think we're seeing it right now. I think we're seeing the brink to what we can actually handle being physically away from people. And for some people, I mean, that isolation has been very hard for them on a mental health standpoint. Um, for some, they were probably flourished. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm a people person, so I, I was not enjoying it at all. My being in my condo by myself was very tiring. Yeah, it's 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 an exhausting living. I was one of those people that I think have learned a lot about myself in this process. Yeah. Um, you know, oh, I don't need to do this. I don't need to do that. And then you you just go down a certain road for a period of time, and then it changes, and you happen to see someone you haven't seen for a, a long time, and you're like. Yeah. Oh, that's what that feels like. And I actually was missing it. I agree with you. I learned a lot of things my, about myself, including the fact that I couldn't cook. <laughs> so I've been, I, I've been work. That's been my journey of the last 18 months. Uh, <laughs> so you've been able to remedy it some, somewhat? No, probably not. But I've just gotten used to the way I cook. So uh, let's just put it this way. I would be taking you out to dinner if you were in Edmonton right now. I wouldn't be inviting you over. That's totally fair. And, and either would work. It doesn't matter to me. I like, I, I don't, I don't look free, get uh, free food and, and turn it away by, by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> Fortunately, I, I enjoy spicy, spicy food. So no matter what I cook, I can always make it palatable by just piling more and more spice onto it. And sadly, uh, because of COVID and that, and we've all got our, many of us have our COVID weight. Um, be honest, hot peppers and spicy food help boost your metabolism. And that's frankly the best workout I've been getting in the last 12 months. <laughs> so you found some, la some life hacks. That, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. Okay. So you're, you find yourself as assistant chair, psychiatry, university of Alberta, uh, which seems to be a far cry from the energy sector. It uh, doesn't seem to really correlate for me at all, but I understand how you got there. Do you ever sit back and go, how, how did I end up here? And, and thank God I did, because you're, you're now straddling two worlds. You're straddling the business world and the mental health world. I, um, I consider myself very lucky because I get to get up every day and experience new things and do new things. And I'm always very motivated in my job, but uh, upon doing reflection has never been my best suit. I'm more of a what's next person. If you handed me the greatest award I could possibly receive, all I would say is what's next. So uh, yeah, no, that, that, that's one thing I still have to work on in my personal journey is to be a little bit more reflective and appreciative of the, what got me here, but uh, no, so I haven't been there, but I do consider myself very lucky that things have fallen into place that have allowed me to transition and do these things that I actually have a genuine curiosity of and a genuine love for. So then let me ask you this, when you take a look where you are right now, uh, Zylorian, you guys are, are embarking on some fantastic stuff right now. What are some of the things that that gets you excited? Like, what are some of the things that you, you think about with this opportunity, such a young company in such a flourishing field as mental health is such at the yeah. forefront, what gets you jacked up? Yeah. So from uh, my philosophical standpoint, what really, really intrigues me and I'm really excited for is the idea that we are going to be able to help another group of people that have not been able to be helped before uh, that at least the traditional methods have not worked for them. So that is very exciting. Will this work for everybody? No, it won't. I mean, anybody who says it will, that's entirely great PR, but, um, but it will work for some and some is better than none. So this is really exciting. And it is kind of the next iteration of mental health. And because of the war on drugs that has existed the last 30 or 40 years and it being an illicit narcotic, it kind of feels like the old west again it's your you know nobody there has been some research done into it but not a lot you're going to create right now and create with the intent to do good um we will do uh dr silverstone will always say 
we we do good by being good. And that is what we're trying to achieve in this company. So I'm very excited about that. From my business guy hat, uh, it's intriguing because it's it's a startup. Uh, I, I've done startups here or there in the private sector before. I've never done anything. We are in the middle of an RTO with a group called Michichi. I've never been a part of a public company in this area before. So that would be very unique and fun for me. And it's now trying to figure out what does the supply chain look like? How do you get a mushroom to grow? How do you then get that mushroom to be extracted so that you have a purity level? Because that's what we believe Health Canada will expect of these different compounds. How do you then synthesize it into a gel or put it in a capsule or whatever it looks like to get to the end person? How do you set up the clinical trials to be able to achieve, to prove you can do what you want to do to allow for FDA and Health Canada status or EU status? So those are really interesting to me. You know, we have a few different paths. We're looking at very different areas to grow in, whether it be in North America, Caribbean, um, Europe, and these are all places that we're not reinventing the wheel. These have been other companies are there. Um, so how do we do it better? Mm. And how do we achieve a better outcome? And those are all the things that intrigue me. That's so cool because you get the opportunity to be on the ground floor here in Canada, but you don't have to recreate the wheel, like you said. So, I mean, that is, that's, that's a startup dream. You don't have yeah. to come up with something out of left field. Um, how have you been able to look at the way other countries have been doing it thus far and, and learn from that? Well, so what's interesting with a lot of the other countries where this is either decriminalized or legalized, which are very different things, decriminalization being that if you got caught with some magic mushrooms uh, in its traditional form, you're not going to get arrested and charged. Legal as you can go and buy it at a store. So Jamaica has legalized mushrooms, and there are a lot of retreats there. We work with a gentleman named Trad Cotter who has worked in this area. He's a mushroom expert. The Mycology Association of America has just given him the Lifetime Achievement Award. There's even that Netflix documentary that he speaks on uh, towards the end of it. Uh, and so he understands the retreat process. We have Robert Rogers, who is a herbalist by trade, has written 40 or 50 books on medicinal mushrooms and has this expertise in it. Uh, and they'll talk to what these countries have. But what, you know, if you look at Jamaica, there are some people who go there for retreats, but some people just use it recreationally, which all well and good and fine if that's what you're into. Netherlands, you could have a truffle, which I'm told tastes awful um, in their form, but you can have it there, but there isn't kind of this therapy model. So what we're kind of learning is first, how do you, retreats as they existed historically and people have been going on them, you know, even very recently, what was it about the treat, retreat that helped and what is it in the area that, you know, needs a little bit more of a traditional therapeutic modality attached to it. So that's what we're trying to learn from some of those places. But one other thing that we can learn is growing techniques, of course, for that natural mushroom. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because that has to be a lot of hoops to jump through, I would imagine, when dealing with uh, Health Canada, uh, yes. to be able to get something that's duplicatable, something that is reliable. Um, I don't know how long it took them to do it with with um, marijuana, but I also know that a lot of the conversation with getting marijuana legalized was so that way they could actually have a database of information that they can draw on. How is that database for things like mushrooms? And I know that we're only talking about mushrooms, but that's not actually the only focus for you guys. But in this case, we're talking about mushrooms. Yeah. So with psilocybin of itself, there isn't a great database at all. It's, it hasn't existed. If people are using it, they've been using it you know, behind the scenes, behind the curtain without actually attention to it. So for the process of, with Health Canada, for example, to even maintain the substance, you have to have a narcotics license. They actually will call it the dealer's license. And I am not a fan of that name, but... Come on, guys, we got to do better. That's I, a terrible name. Think, right? But so, you know, that and that application is a minimum of 270 days to get it. And then it's focused primarily on the security versus the actual um, chemistry behind it. So whether I, I'm trying to grow a psilocybin producing mushroom, or I'm trying to do a synthetic psilocybin or, a, or LSD or MDMA 
you need to have that narcotics license. First and foremost, Health Canada will come and say, hey, this is great, you've met a security level requirement. And then it's up to other processes to make sure you have a GMP controlled lab, the manufacturing process lab, or something else to actually meet the standards for human clinical trials. And human clinical trials is not necessarily the first step. It could be an animal trial, depending what you're trying to do. So the journey from, uh, you know, starting it to actually having something that is going to be prescribable is still probably a few years away. Very interesting. The license, we'll just call it license because dealer, I got it. That's terrible. But anyways, the license, once you have the narcotics license, do you have the ability to then be able to, uh, go into any of the psychedelics that, that you've been talking about? You are Yes, you're able to produce them. Each one has a value attached to, I think it's per gram or per kilo. So that the license will be for X amount of dollars. So just throw a round number out. Let's say we have $1 million that we're allowed to keep on hand of whatever the material is. And if you were looking at MDMA, for example, and it was a hundred thousand dollars per kilo is the value that Health Canada assigns to it, I'd be able to keep 10 grams of that on site and that's it. So um, you could, once you have that license, you're able to work with different areas within the narcotics world, but you're still going to be limited by what the security requirement you have is. Now, does that inform what you're going to focus on as the as the the substance that you want to produce, or do you guys go into it already going? No, we think that psilocybin has the most medicinal qualities to it, so we'll focus on that. That is, it's the latter. That is how we proceeded. Others, diff, very different uh, pathways. Some individuals are trying to focus on all forms of these groups. Uh, there are a few out there, uh, Mind Medicine, for example, that has MDMA, LSD, psilocybin, like they are trying to have, look at all opportunities, which is fair, because you don't know which ones will be allowed first, which won't, it makes perfect sense in that regard for their path. But with the physicians we have and the researchers we have on our team, it was very clear that we wanted to focus on psilocybin. So is there a bit of an arms race right now in terms of psychedelics and what they and what people think are going to be the psychedelics that get legalized here in Canada? Uh, I don't know if it'd be an arms race because you'd be racing to an unknown finish line is part of the issue because we don't know what it will be. So what you're having is a lot of individuals that based on whatever the reasoning and whatever logic that they bring to the table are deciding I want to focus on X, Y, or Z. And that is what they're going with. Health Canada in and of itself, I don't know which way they're going to go. The common belief is in the US MDMA will get the very first door open because of the work MAPS has been doing for so many years with psilocybin likely being second uh, for uh, legal status, but for prescriptions, but we're still a ways from that. And even if the FDA does say in the US, using the US example that, hey, this is, we will allow federally for this to be available. It doesn't mean every state will allow it to be available. So it's a bit of a different system down there as well. Yeah, because at this point in time, I guess there are a couple of states, if I'm not mistaken, that have uh, access to psilocybin. Is, is that correct? Like I think Colorado? Uh, so, so many have decriminalized. Decriminalized. It. Oh, I see. Okay, so yes, we're into where that. Oregon, though, has a two-year. Is currently in its a, a two-year uh, review on how to make psychedelics legal for medicinal use, but they are still in the process of writing out those laws. Yeah, there was a plebiscite during the last federal election in Oregon, and it passed. So right now they're writing up the laws, and I, which is all well and good, because now everybody else is just going to borrow them and probably we will as well as a country of again why reinvent the wheel in many ways well you know everybody will add their own little tinge to it but they're they're doing a lot of the heavy lifting that's that that's just common sense and yeah. it's also a nice business approach too you, you don't necessarily need to be the first one out there taking that bullet you can you know let other people kind of go along while you're focusing on other things yeah. at the same time yeah, it's, um, there's actually, it's called parallel play. There's a lot of research that came out of Harvard about this, uh, where if you look at a lot of successful companies that won the 
the race in a nascent industry. A lot of them, they weren't coming to the table with the most unique ideas, and that's what made them successful. They were looking what the front runners were doing and were virtually copying it while making some slight adjustments. I mean, it makes sense. There's going to be different levels, right? There's going to be the people who come up with the idea. There's going to be people who run with the idea, people who tweak the idea. And that, that's just evolution. For the most part, the society that we have now it has evolved from a couple of original ideas. Yes. And, you know, even when we, you were speak, asking about the lobbying, uh, a lot of that was done by MAPS and Theracell in Vancouver up in Canada. And they're nonprofits, but they've been the ones doing kind of the heavy lifting. And we're all just kind of reaping a bit of the benefit, hopefully, of the hard work they've put in for 20 years trying to get this to happen. That's amazing. And having to deal with all those different governments that have come and gone along the ways, like how much does that weigh in like on people's minds when they're working on something like this? Yeah. And, you know, theoretically, the FDA and Health Canada are supposed to be arm's length independent groups. But you know, over time, depending on, I, I, and this is just a personal thought, depending on the ruling party, of course, as you're hiring new leads for this and everything else, of course, some of your dogma is going to probably cycle into who you hire. I mean, I'm the same way and you'd be the same way hiring somebody as well. Uh, you're going to hire individuals that align with what you're thinking. So there's this natural cultural uh, occurrence that happens as ruling parties change over four or eight or 12 years. That's amazing. So how many components are working on getting psilocybin legalized in Canada? Oh, you have, you have physicians, you have nonprofits, you have people with lived experience uh, in mental health that feel they need it. I mean, there have been a few individuals who have been given the ability to use this, mainly for end-of-life treatment, but seeing the, the benefits, you have all those people trying to push forward. You have researchers who've been saying for years and years and years, this could, this will benefit it. So there's a lot of different prongs trying to bring this all together. And it's Health Canada's job to sit back and take all this information in. And they did do that earlier this year and say, we agree with what you've presented or not, because you're missing this and this, and, and then say, this is how we want to proceed forward because there's still got to be some proof of concept. I mean, while we can all say that we believe this is going to work, it is their job to make sure that whatever they agree to is good for us as a population. And that's their job. And I have, I completely understand why they need to do what they need to do and do those hurdles. So uh, they've been getting a lot of individuals trying to move this forward and they're taking their required time to really look at this and come back with how they see this progressing forward. But it is the belief within the industry, not just mine, that Health Canada will be coming back and saying, okay, we're ready to go with clinical trials. I don't think they're going to make this available on mass anytime in the next year or two, most likely. But we're willing to progress with more clinical trials so you can prove to us that it works for treatment-resistant depression, or it works for sleep disorders like insomnia, or it works for eating disorders. These are all different things that different companies are looking at, uh, and we'll allow it to be prescribed for it. Very cool. What would you say right now are your, your personal three main focuses, whether that's what you're currently focused on and then the next two steps or the next three steps or all of those steps being currently the three things simultaneously that you're figuring out? Oh, it's simultaneous. So for <laughs> us, it's for me, for us, it's a, the psilocybin supply chain. How do you get it? It's very hard to get right now. Like not many people are doing it because of the difficulty of getting the license. So how do you get psilocybin? How do you get it to a level that can meet the requirements of clinical studies, human clinical studies? So that is a big piece of it. Uh, because within that, even if I sat back and said, I can get it tomorrow from the US or Jamaica, I still need that license to be able to import it here. Even if it's just a researcher's license for clinical trials, I will need a license of some sort of from Health Canada. And you know, the next thing is setting up the clinical trials. And what will that look like? Are there animal models? Are there human clinical trials? 
And that's not easy. You have ethics you have to go through. You need to make sure the funding is in place, the outcome measures, the, the research offices have to review the entire clinical trial because we, of course, want to try to do it through a post-secondary institution to ensure that what you're doing is meeting all the requirements of research in today's day and age. So, and the third piece is going to be trying to figure out that therapeutic modality that we talked about earlier. What is the best therapy to offer and how do you offer it in this area? I mean, if you're doing a microdose, odds are you don't necessarily need to be in a therapist's office because you could do it and we could just talk as we're doing right now because there's no fear in a microdose of having a quote unquote bad trip. Mm-hmm. However, if you're going on a full trip, that's a very different world. And how do you prepare people for that trip? Uh, I mean, I've never done it before, to be honest. And if I did, I don't know what to expect. So is there a therapy that is required prior to that? And many people are working on this, on how to ensure that you know what you are getting into and you are prepared for what that journey will feel like. It's such an important aspect of this whole thing when people talk about, oh yeah, I've done mushrooms before and it's this and it's that. Um, my personal experiences and my personal conversations that I've had with individuals, uh, I, I'm just of the belief that unless you're an unbelievably open-minded person to something that you could not even possibly put your finger on, then you should be in the right hands. I mean, they, they do, you read anything, you, even going back to Michael Pollan's stuff, any of this literature is going to tell you that you have to be in a safe space preferably around a, a, you know, a person that you trust and, and just be as comfortable as possible if you're going to go on that journey. Yeah, and that is, I mean, if you look at some out there like Field Trip, who are focusing more on ketamine, but do have a plan to do other psychedelics, they are building clinics with that service concept of having a spa-like therapy, which is really helpful for a lot of individuals. I am kind of that weird guy. I almost would prefer it looking like a medical office because that's just who I am. And you can even just tell, even though it's a blurred background behind me on this Zoom call that uh, I, I like sparseness. Sure. So Minimalism, baby. Yeah, that works for me. And, you know, it, there's room for all of this to occur. But yeah, you do need to have people who are trained and know what you're doing to, to manage it. I mean, this is an extreme example, but if you got blackout drunk, do you want to be with somebody who knows how to handle you or do you want to just be walking down the street by yourself? It's, it's a great example because that's exactly what it is. You're not yourself. And, and to be quite honest with you, if you want to experiencing something beyond, if you want to experience something beyond what you've experienced, you have to let a little bit of yourself go. You've got to release that ego. Yeah. And if we're going to use this as a healthcare tool, you have to meet the standards of healthcare. And that is an important piece of it. I think that's the, the thing that's fascinated me the most so far and something that I've been changing my opinions on a little bit since marijuana has been legalized. But when that was becoming legalized, as I was sharing with, uh, with Mike in our previous conversation, my uh, conspiratorial mind popped up. As soon as I heard government involvement, I was like, oh, they're going to ruin weed. We just grow it in our backyards. And this is not something that I've even partaken in my entire life. This is just more of a recent thing. Yeah. Um, but I, I can see some of the values in that. And so my concern every time I hear that a laboratory is getting involved is, are they just creating something that is watered down or something that's not even nearly close to what the original thing is? In this case, we're talking mushrooms and psilocybin. Um, mm-hmm. Is that a conversation that's at the forefront of this is making sure that we, we keep intact the thing that, like you said, we've been using for thousands of years? For some of us, not everybody. And I'm not going to say we're right or wrong. That's what the clinical studies will prove. Mm-hmm. Is, there, is the entourage effect important or not? I mean, that belief occurred in marijuana as well. And marijuana generally had a very natural uh, pathway. I mean, I, you could have had synthetic THC, but you don't really hear about that. It's people wanted an organic or a natural product. Uh, will psilocybin uh, with the mushroom DMT as well? I mean, DMT is a naturally produced product. Will those, will this market maintain that or will people go towards the more synthetic pharma? I'm not 100% sure yet. And in some cases, as with any industry, 
we can have our beliefs, but if the industry is saying otherwise, uh, you kind of forced to go with whatever anybody is saying. And frankly, that industry will be created by whatever the Health Canada, the FDA decide is the requirements that one has to get through. And you guys are keeping that open approach right now because you don't know what the end result is going to be yeah. just in psilocybin alone. Yeah. Um, now on your website, it does talk about offering multiple, I, I can't remember the exact wording, but essentially offering a lot of opportunity for people to get the mental health, uh, to, to address their mental health issues. Yeah. And that sounds like it is multi-pronged, like you were saying before, with therapy and different um, modes or modalities like you yeah. were talking about with psychedelics, your focus on psilocybin right now, are you guys going to be focusing on other things like DMT and uh, ketamine or anything like that? No, not at this point. Ketamine, we would, you know, ketamine could always come into play right now if we are looking at different therapeutic modalities, possibly, simply because it's the legal psychedelic. Mm. So if you look at everybody in the industry, Odds are they're going to have some form of ketamine therapy program right now because it's the only one that I can put a shingle up on a roof somewhere and have people come in and test a digital platform or a therapeutic modality or a delivery system or anything else along those lines. So uh, right now, ketamine is kind of the stopgap in many ways. In Alberta, in Edmonton, I mean, we have some ketamine clinics. We have the health services working on different ketamine concepts, but it feels that right now, most of the industry is just waiting for these other opportunities to become more real uh, through the regulatory bodies to really get going with that. So what is it about ketamine that doesn't seem to offer that full solution or you're going to have to talk to us. Oh, that's fair. That's fair. You have to get Dr. Silverstone or somebody to talk about that. Totally fair. That, it sounds like it's the next, the next conversation. Yeah, I, I, I can talk about that in a very general sense that it, you'll at the end of it say, well, <laughs> that's totally fair. No, I appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just throwing questions at you at this point. In time. <laughs> um, you know what, Scott? So at this point in time, I want you to tell me, what you would like people to know at this point in time as to why we're doing this, why it's important that we do this now, um, and what the hell can we do to get this sped up? Mm -hmm. uh, why are we doing it now? Because people need help, and what we've been doing so far hasn't helped enough. Um, you know, it's the there's this argument back and forth of are people becoming more susceptible? To mental health issues or are we just more open to talk about them and that's why it seems like it's more and I don't actually I haven't seen enough stats to really say it's one or the other at this point but why it's important right now is because if this can help 25 35 40 percent of those individuals and that would be a very lofty number that currently are suffering why wouldn't we? Especially it's people who are suffering. And this is something, these are all, many of these are substances that have existed for 20, you know, for 2000, 3000 years. Um, if you look up Robert Rogers books, he'll actually have paint like, um, there are, you know, chisels in walls uh, that are thousands of years old about the mushroom and the healing benefit of the mushroom. So this isn't necessarily new science. We're just rediscovering it. And we're trying to figure out how to turn into the science we require to use it in healthcare. I, I absolutely love that because I, I have had experiences and I'll be honest with you when it comes to the things that I've experienced thus far, if you're in the right headspace, if you have the right guidance, if you're in the right situation, my God, is it ever a useful tool? But it is only that. It's just a tool. Um, yeah. So why not offer that tool to other people if they can benefit from it? Right. And this is the other important concept. Um, there are going to be, when it comes to why a healthcare setting, and I know that there's going to be a, a sect of individuals that do not, who just think that one should just be able to do a mushroom or LSD on their own, and that's fine. But part of the importance of that healthcare setting is not just the safety of it, but it's going to open a door to a lot of individuals who would not have been willing to try it 
on their own because it's a trusted relationship with somebody that they know is experienced and understand how to manage it. And that if they have a bad trip or there's a biometric feedback that is saying that they're now having an issue with their heart racing too much or anything else, that you're able to be in a safe zone with people who know how to handle it. That's a really important point. I think that a lot of people, including myself, and like I said, I'm, I'm slowly changing my, my perspective and my tone, but if you don't have professionals there, then it really is crapshoot. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll be honest with you. When you were just talking about ketamine, I didn't really know much about ketamine. And all I've heard about it is from a recreational perspective. And so I didn't even know that that was a mode that could be used right mm-hmm. now for therapies. So there, there's so many things, there's so much misinformation out there, as we know, it's a, it's a term that we all use now. Um, but with a lot of these substances that have just been used, and some people have used them very honestly, but other people have just used them for recreation, and that's okay. But you're right. If you don't have professionals there vouching for it, testing it, which is exactly what you guys are in the process of doing, then you you can't be certain what's going to happen with this stuff. Yeah. And it's kind of that interesting outside set of eyes in some ways where you or I might be willing to just try it on our own and do it and see how it works. If I sat back and said, though, that your 19-year-old son who's been suffering from depression or suicidal or anything uh, is having issues, maybe they should try psilocybin. Would you prefer them trying it on their own or would you prefer them trying it with a counselor in a safe environment? That's a valid, that's a really valid point. Somebody that has a pre-existing mental condition or any kind of health condition is going to be susceptible for really drastic outcomes. That's a valid point. Honestly, that's where I think I want to leave it, Scott. I oh, think uh, that you, you you nailed it right there. I, 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 I'm leaving on a high note. You leave it on, on the highest be, possible. <laughs> I finally had a succinct idea. That's fantastic. <laughs> Smart move. You've I'm, no, you've been listen. You've been awesome throughout this entire conversation. Uh, I know that you're a busy person. Uh, I know that you've got a lot going on, uh, being over in Europe, getting things over there, going over there, being in Alberta. Uh, I really appreciate you sitting down and explaining this process a little bit about what you've gone through um, thus far. And uh, by all means, I, I would love to continue to build out this conversation, talk to the different people who are involved. So feel free to pass my name along. I would really like to pick people's brains on I this. Will, I will happily do it. And uh, you tell me which areas you'd like to talk about next. And I will find people that are uh, so much more knowledgeable than I am. That sounds like a deal to me, my friend. Yeah. All, right. <laughs> All right. Well, you thank you very much for uh, for stopping by. And, uh, and I have a feeling that we'll be having a conversation again soon. Sounds great. Thank you, Chris. Take care, Scott. Take care. Bye.